All right, everyone, welcome to the first episode of Triple Zero, The War Inside and Out. Mark Andrews, how are you, champion? Yeah, good, mate. How are you? Yep, very good, mate. Um, welcome to Currajong. Oh, it's beautiful out here, isn't it? Yeah, so we'll try and use this as our setting for the podcast from now on. Sweet. So, mate, um, yeah, we've been obviously talking for a couple of months now and just sharing our experiences, yep. um, time in the cops. We've both been through some shit in the last uh 20 years 30 years we're just been talking with other other police and first responders and really just thought we'd just create a podcast and just share our experiences um from in the police also talk about our experiences with ptsd how we've been managing in the last um x amount of years talk about our mental health the support we've had the support we haven't had you know yourself dealing with insurance companies and the struggles that that you've experienced um over the time yes so really this is just a platform that we wanted to share our stories with and hopefully it um, helps other people to know that they're not alone for someone that they can reach out to that they can talk to so mate um thanks very much for doing this and you know i've been inspired and uplifted by your courage and the bravery that you've been shown yourself lately and of intimate knowledge of the struggles that you've had and so thanks mate for sharing everything that we're going to go through today will be like the first episode and pleasure mate no it's been um i said you said i inspire you mate but you've inspired me to come out and talk about it because as you know you feel so alone yeah your thoughts and your feelings and think it's something wrong with you and especially with the group of uh, mates we used to hang around with, it, was, it would have been a sign of weakness to have admitted what we're actually been going through and stuff like that. And our egos definitely took over. So it's comforting knowing that I wasn't alone. Yep. Um, I know that's bad for you because that means you've had to go through the same things I've had to go through, but it's comforting to know that it's not something that you are alone with. And I know there's a lot of other people out there too that have been afraid to talk about it or even come out with it because of that fear of... Um, I've not been feeling that they're normal or something like that or just ashamed about how people are going to judge them. So, 100%. So hopefully if this can even just lift the lid on someone else to come forward and that just one person, that's a success. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we were really tight you know, around that 2000 to 2004 period when we were at, yeah. um, at Penrith Police Station. And after I left, definitely for all the experiences and... Uh, pain and suffering I was going through I just upped and left and ran away because I thought I was the only person going through it I I felt um, really alone Um, and then yeah spent the next 15 years really distancing myself from everyone because I thought I was the odd one out Um, and then obviously we've uh, made contact a few months ago after 15 years and realized that you know, we've been going through some similar stuff and yeah, uh, I mean, this is just about trying to bring everyone back together rather than suffering alone, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, just that um, disappearing, I did the same, just stopped going to social settings, stopped accepting invites and then after a period of time, the invites start drying up and you just don't turn up and yep. you just sort of disappear off the, the social scene altogether, I suppose, and just completely disappear. Yeah. Um, and again, you just, no one misses you. Mm. Even even though, you know, you, you've got this tight bond with all these blokes, but it doesn't really, you don't get missed anyway. So yeah. I think just life goes on. And I think that's, you know, just everyone else has got their own struggles and that's, so I can appreciate that. But 
I think that makes you feel even more alone because you you are concerned that yeah what you've got is different to what everyone else and maybe yep. not as strong as them because they continue to be able to continue on with their life but um, looking back at it now I think it was just a way of masking what we're going through what we actually were doing and I think a lot of people are still doing that yeah definitely yeah. well we're going to talk in depth over you know hopefully many many episodes about yep. all of our experiences and um what we've what we've experienced after after the cops and just so everyone can get to know us i guess what what year did you join how long were you in for and where did you work i joined in uh march 1988 um i was 18 years old i'd only just finished the hsc in what november 97 um 87 sorry not 97 18 years old 18 years old i was i remember yeah 28th of march 1988 mate still living at home at my mum's place mate i was a kid still i hadn't grown up i wasn't an adult and for me all of a sudden to be thrust into a policing world and i had no idea what i was in for yeah um it took me by surprise like um i guess the excitement overtook any fear or any um concerns i did have but again i had no idea what i was in for yeah and i was definitely not prepared for it like i had no life skills um i was straight out of school i was yep. raw no life experience whatsoever and it just that is not the um attributes that i think i required to be a police officer you, you need to have life skills you need to have experienced some things to be able to cope with like your first day on the job it's just not an ease into it, it was you're there you do whatever comes in so yeah uh, definitely underprepared for it. Was 18 a, a common age back then? Were, were you relatively one, obviously the youngest, but was there other 18 year olds in the academy or? Yeah, there was other 18s there. I, was, I wasn't the youngest. I was probably about two or three younger than me. Really? Um, I turned, you had to be 19 to actually be attested. Uh-huh. And I turned 19 probably just under three weeks before I'd been attested. Um, I got attested on the 17th of June. 88. Mm-hmm. Um, birthday was 24th of May, so a couple of weeks after I turned 19, I was sworn in as a police officer. Wow. Whereabouts did you work? Straight up to Blacktown. <laughs> Very first day, Blacktown. Straight into the heart of Western Sydney. Yeah, straight into one of the, or well, was the busiest station at the time, and it was infamous then because of the um, Anita Cobby murder. Okay. That all occurred at uh, Blacktown, and also the... Um, Zarkos, there was a police shooting where they killed a bloke called Zarkos from a police pursuit and uh, the police were heavily criticised um, for that. So there's a lot of um, bad blood in the area with the Zarkos family and the policing around that area and, and whatnot. So not mm. two relatively um, major incidents that occurred just before I'd arrived at the Blacktown station. So Mm. It was fairly well known Blacktown Police and the area. What was the culture like inside the station amongst the troops? Do you remember? Yeah, mate, they were hard. Um, the police of those days were like big, like they were tall. There was the height and weight restrictions when I joined, so they were all big blokes. Like I was like tiny, I was a kid, and they were intimidating. Like um, these hardened coppers, they were intimidating. Mm. Um, the one stripers back there, it wasn't just because they'd done 12 months, they'd actually done five years in the cops. Um, yeah. They were first class constables and mate, they were experienced. Um, they knew what they're, you know, they knew what they were doing. Um, your senior constables, they were 10 years in the job and stuff like that. And then your senior sergeants then who ran the place, like you had a genuine fear of them. Like um, 
you wouldn't want to look sideways. If you look wrongly at them, they'd be ripping into you. Or if you got caught up to their office, you'd be shitting yourself. So yeah, there was definitely this discipline around it, and there was definitely a um, a culture of um, you had to be hard, you had to be tough. You couldn't show any weakness because um, they'd rip it out of you. And and it took me probably six months to be accepted, and that was pretty much after I'd had my first time on the drink with them. Mm. Um, and that was pretty much how you were accepted that you could drink and be trusted by drinking with them mm. and that was even drinking on shift yeah obviously is not acceptable but it was back then as being acceptable behavior that if you're not going to drink on shift with your mates and you couldn't be trusted and you'd be isolated pretty much and mm. um, no one would work with you or trust you um, as i said if a bloke didn't drink they couldn't trust them so yeah um, they pretty much if you didn't fit in and my being an 18 year old, I was impressionable. I just wanted to fit in. So pretty much whatever they were going to tell me or what I had to do, I was going to do it just to make sure I, I slotted into their culture and, and was made to feel part of it. So Yeah. How long were you at Blacktown for? Uh, I did four years at Blacktown. Yeah, okay. So straight up four years. Yeah. yeah. So that takes you up to about 23? Um, yeah, it was 23, so up to 1992. Yeah. Yeah. Where did you go from there? Uh, from there, I went straight to Penrith. Okay. I uh, did a straight swap with a bloke. Yeah. Uh, went to Penrith. Do you remember a reason why, or you just wanted uh, to change? Or? Yeah, I was playing police football at the time. There was a bloke that was playing, and he just uh, he wanted out of Penrith and wanted to change, and he asked if I wanted to swap to Blacktown. Yep. Um, I thought, yeah, go to Penrith because I was playing with the uh, Penrith police side, and most of the blokes that were in the team worked at Penrith, so I thought, you know, it'd be a I guess a lot more fun and yeah. um, work with the blokes that I play football with. And back then, they'd actually look after you. They'd roster you off on days off to so you could play footy and all that sort of stuff. They'd yeah. actually um, accommodate you to actually be part of the team. And that, and I guess being part of the football team also helped you fit into the culture a lot better too. So yeah. um, the culture back then was playing the footy team, go out and the drink and all that sort of stuff. And it sort of placed you up on that pedestal a bit, which obviously fed into your ego a lot because, um, you know, you had that sort of like, it wasn't a respect, but you sort of like, people treated you differently around the station because you were playing police football and because you were, I don't know, deemed part of, part of the in-group or whatever it is. So mm. it was, because um, police football back then was huge. Like there was about 18 or 19 tw teams in the competition. I think it was the second largest competition behind the, the New South Wales Rugby League at the time, so yep. in terms of um, team numbers and stuff like that, and massive sponsorships, um, like we had um, like Jim Beams, licensed premises, um, we had massive sponsorships um, in on it as well, so yeah, um, it was a fairly big competition. Ex-first grade players were playing, um, yep. a lot of them, I was definitely part of a, a culture that, yeah, again, being young, it was good to be made to feel part of, and yeah. I said, made you feel sort of like invincible and yep. just part of that. Yep. Yeah. If anyone just heard that noise, <laughs> so so my neighbour, she can't drive. <laughs> she's, she's got a manual car. Yeah. And every time, like it's a bit of a sloping driveway. <laughs> and every time she leaves, it's, she just, <laughs> so uh, yeah, mate, with our background, we shit yourself when you use things <laughs> yeah, like that. Someone uh, just stole a car, I thought. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And while I was at Blacktown to too, um, after about two years, I actually did, um, I completed the uh, tactical response group training. So yep. I was a member of the part-time TRG 
we draw it back up to the full-time TRG. Um, I only got to do that for probably six months before there was a Royal Commission into one of uh, um, a search warrant, I think on Gundy or something like that. There was a search warrant conducted which was um, deemed illegal and they ended up um, disbanding the TRG. Mm-hmm. Um, then for a number of years there was no elite squad and then they formed the operational support group down the track. But I was part of the TRG whilst I was at Blacktown. And from Blacktown went to Penrith. Uh, Penrith just mainly GDs. And then from Penrith while I was GDs, I then got trans... I don't know how many years I was there, but I didn't end up trans... Well, I met my, um, my wife, Diane, at uh, Penrith. After we were married and all that, we then moved to a little country town called Bravewood. Yep. Where we were planning on sort of like uh, establishing ourselves out in the country and settling up, settling in the country for a, a long period of time and, and raising our family out there. But yep. um, we only did just under two years out at Braidwood. And then How was the adjustment going from Penrith to, to Braidwood? Um, for me, it was difficult being a city boy, but it was easy for Diane because she was a country girl. Okay. And she made me adjust pretty well. Yep. Um, and her family made me adjust pretty well because I was used to the country life and they pretty much gave me tips on how to be accepted in the community. So I got involved in the local cricket team and football team and pretty much immersed myself in, in their um, lifestyle down there. So I became part of the community and things like that. So yeah, I actually enjoyed it because it was, I guess it was how policing was meant to be, you know, being out there and engaging with the community, talking to them, not always reacting, but being proactive, like mm. going and talking to them. And, and the, the amount of stuff they'd tell you was incredible. Like, yeah. Um, and just being friendly with them and like everyone like i'd go to the pub and people would come and talk to me and that i wasn't isolated or nothing like that they just um appreciated the fact that i was there to help them so yeah um it was a good experience um how old were you then um uh, i would have been late 20s then okay because so, we just had my first daughter she was young died just fallen pregnant with our um, second child matthew and that was half the reason we, we transferred back to penrith was just because um her family were living up at muscle brook at that time and my family yep. were all up at penrith and we weren't planning on having a child so quickly mm-hmm. after the first one so we just wanted a bit of um family support so yeah in hindsight probably not the best thing to have moved back but you don't know that until after that but there was a few um incidences that happened while i attended down at um, braidwood which not realizing the effect that it had on me probably would have um shortened our stay anyway so yeah um I'm, we'll get into those yeah, yeah. those experiences yeah. um but i i can imagine if there's not much support in metropolitan sydney there wouldn't be no there's any in braidwood <laughs> no there's none uh although the commander was 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 pretty good he um of anyone like he would ring me and um a couple of times but again it wasn't much in terms of like attending counseling or anything like that it was just pretty much phone call or you know house things and all that sort of stuff but well, I think it was just more of a you know check in, not pretty much offering anything. But and one of the ones as I said we'll talk about later on. One of them deeply affected me only because it was probably the first time I'd attended a fatality, or it was probably what well, was the first fatality I attended to where I had my own child. Yeah. And the impact was completely different to the other fatalities I'd attended to. Like mm. I, the um, experience of attending and um, dealing with parents from that because I was a new parent at that time, had a complete profound effect on me in terms of the way I coped in that regard. So I think my barrier that I had put up in terms of dealing with other ones got completely knocked down with that one. Yeah. So my whatever coping mechanisms, which weren't healthy anyway, like the drinking and stuff like that, this one I was just emotionally, I had no um, protection. And that sort of really knocked me about quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you, you're at Braidwood. Um, so that would have been about 98, I think it was, that was. Okay. Actually, because that's, yeah, it would have been around 98 because that's when I got diagnosed with PTSD. Right. Um, and they attributed it to one of the incidences at Braidwood. So, right, um, okay. But yeah. We'll talk a lot about that. Yep. Um, so you come back to Penrith. Yep. How long did, was your second stint there for? A fair while. I stayed at Penrith for a fair while after that. Um, the only reason I left Penrith was I went, I won my sergeant's job out at um, City Central. Oh, yeah. Um, so I went to City Central, promoted to sergeant. Again, I can't remember what year that was, but um, it was a time where headquarters had moved from Sydney to, Para- to Parramatta. To Parramatta, yeah. So and the way the police department works and how they stuff everything up, I'd actually applied for other sergeant's positions and because I'd won these sergeant positions at uh, Sydney, I thought, well, I'm there for at least three years, whatever it was. And then after about being there for nine months, I get a phone call saying, oh, you applied for this sergeant's job. And I said, yeah, I'm already a substantial sergeant at Sydney. And they said, yeah, well, that's good because if you still want to go for this job and you're successful because you're substantial, no one can appeal you. You just get the position. And the position was actually back at Penrith. <laughs> so um, just thinking, like, I was doing the night shifts in Sydney and that, and I thought, well, you know, like the 12-hour shifts, long shifts, travelling home, tired and that, I thought, well, yeah, I'll give it a go, I've got nothing to lose. And yeah. lo and behold, I went for the interview and got the job back at Penrith. So Something kept bringing you back. Um, I don't know what it was, but it kept bringing me back to Penrith. And as I said, like the stuff-ups with the police service, like all the um, applications that were done because they'd moved headquarters and that, they all just got put on the back burn and then they brought them back up again. And then even people that had already won positions because I was still in the the system for these other jobs you could apply for them and then because you're already a sergeant no one had the right to appeal you on it so oh. very very good system they had in place yeah Not. another another podcast would, <laughs> i saw best friends become bitter enemies over uh, that appeals process and yeah. start applying for sergeant's jobs and i uh, became um it became bitter like oh, everyone, yeah. everyone becomes so personal about it and and were offended by people appealing them and yep. or someone getting a job over them and, and things like that. And, yep. Um, best mates. Yeah, I saw the, um, the best of mates. Yep. Friendships just end over a bloody fact that one of them got the position over the other person. And, yep. And, and the process is set up where it's not necessarily the best person that gets a job either. It's, yeah, that's um, right. Like the whole process is you've got to get your application to the point of where you get accepted to the interview and then the interview is completely separate to any t- sort of other interview you do as well so it takes a couple of goes at the interview before you get experience to be able to know the interview and stuff like that so it's, mm. it took me a couple of goes before i actually won the sergeant position but as each time going you learn a bit more experience about what's required yeah and you're better prepared for the next one so yeah yeah um it definitely is an affair system which recognizes um I suppose a person's experience and um, as opposed to their uh, interviewing skills. Yeah. So, so you're back at um, Penrith as a sergeant? Yep. Did you leave from there or whereabouts? What happened from there? Um, no, I pretty much stayed in Penrith. Um, I worked with the patrol intelligence team, mm-hmm. which I think you spent a bit of time with as well. Yeah. Um, I think it was still called Pit when you went to it. Yeah. Um, after that point, I'd. Um, I had a lot of surgeries as well on my ankle and things like that, so I put into a um, restricted position in the intel section as yep. an intel sergeant, and pretty much spend the, um, the remaining of my days there, I suppose. But mm. um, that's just not what I joined the cops for was to be at a desk job and that. So it's sort of I wouldn't say cruisy. It was hard the work, but it's just not what the work I was wanting. Yeah. The reason why I joined was sort of not there anymore. So yeah. it sort of just become a process of going to work day in day out and. 
just doing what I had to do. Like mm. in terms of hours, Monday to Friday, weekends off was great, and that quality of life was good. And what year did you leave? Uh, I was medically discharged in 2012. Okay, so you've been out for eight years now. Been out for eight years, and I served 24 years. 24 years, so it's quite a few podcast episodes <laughs> in there. It, yeah, yeah, 24. Um, Working with my psychiatrist and psychologist, that they've worked out that I've got complex post-traumatic stress, which is overexposure, mm-hmm. uh, repeated exposures, and they've worked out that there's got to be over a hundred that could be relatable to um, contributing to the the complex PTSD. So yeah, yeah. Um, obviously, each one has its different effect on you, and some yeah. don't cause me that much stress, and others cause a lot of degree of um, stress. So. Yeah, mate. Um well, 24 years, so I had a third of that, <laughs> and mate, three times more exposure than what I had. I, I can't imagine, you know, the effect that that would have on you, like knowing what, just mm. what well, I've experienced to have three times that amount support, mental, you know, mental health support that the police lack, and the way the insurance companies deal with mm. uh, mental health is atrocious. So, you know, we'll, t- we'll talk about all that. Definitely. Mate, I joined in 97, yep. so started off at uh, Green Valley, so I did uh, Another three... Another good little spot. Yeah, <laughs> so very similar to Blacktown. Yep. So when we were asked at the academy to put in your three preferences, I, I had no idea. Or was it my, the advice from people that were in the cops, go to a busy station, you learn a lot quicker. Yep. So I put in for Green Valley, Mount Druitt and Blacktown actually, because I was living at Guildford at the time. So never even heard of Green Valley before that. Sounded good. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, applied for Green Valley, got that. So I did three and a half years there. So if you don't know where Green Valley is, it's a suburb just um, west of Liverpool. A lot of housing commission around Mm -hmm. Miller, Cartwright, Heckenberg, Ashcroft, Miller. (laughs) From there, I did. after that, I did a year at Cabramatta. Do you remember Operation Bacini? Yes. So, mate, Cabramatta at, you know, 99, 2000, that time, that yep. was just an absolute war zone, yep. thanks to heroin and, yep. mate, um, yeah, I just saw so much there. That that was crazy, yep. that, that year at Cabramatta. From there, same, was um, playing police footy and yep. had a lot of mates at the time and uh, really wanted to play with the boys out at Penrith, <laughs> so... Sergeant Mick Connolly at the time yep. went on to be um, chief inspector. Last yeah. I heard, yeah, we did some wheeling and dealing and got over, got a transfer over to Penrith. Yep. So did a little bit of time in GDs there, and then um, yeah, like you said, went into the pit team for about three years, I guess. Yep. There after all the the search warrants and uh, the stuff that went on there and everything else that had gone on, uh, two thousand and five. I basically, I wasn't coping with a lot of stuff and yep. so just uh, decided to resign. Yep. And not a question, hey. Yeah, I remember yep. going up to Superintendent Ben Fezcheck's office <laughs> and saying, boss, I'm uh, resigning. Yeah. No problems. So you knew it was the right decision. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but just not even why. Yeah. You know, just like even that lack of support of... Oh, there's no support. No, look you know, all the resources that they put into you and, you know, you slug it out over, and you know, just me, just eight years. Yeah. And then they just allow people to leave 
without I, even without questioning even the amount of uh, time money invested in you and they're not even everyone refers to you as just being a number and that just highlights it yeah you go and someone just gets a new registered number and they take your place yeah exactly uh, do you remember your oh actually why did you want to join the cops it wasn't really my first choice it was um i actually wanted to be a pe teacher and i actually got accepted to university and um bathurst university it was and i remember driving up there in probably january 1988 and i after I left school, I was day after my last exam for the HSC, I got a job working at Liquorland. Yeah. Being 18 years of age, having been at school all my life, and all of a sudden getting a wage, I thought, how good is this? Like, all of a sudden I had friends I didn't even know I had, like, because I had the money to go to the club and buy yeah. drinks and stuff like that. But, you know, it was good, like, and a bit of money in that. And then I, the last thing I thought of, oh, I just can't be bothered doing another year of study. I want a year off. So I went up there and deferred my studies for a year. But when I was at school, we had a career advisement day. And we went up to where it's the University of Western Sydney now. We went up there and there was just all these tents up there and everyone was giving us advice on different careers. And I remember going to the police tent. I went to the fire brigade tent, I think the defence force and all that sort of stuff. And they gave you application packages and things like that. And I remember filling out the application for the fireys and the, the police and um, I submitted them, not expecting too much from them. But it was always like, um, I guess, the... The appeal of the uniform and the respect that they did have and all that sort of stuff i guess that's what appealed to me about it um and the fact that it was a career yeah um and there was obviously other areas that you could branch out into like i said i went to the trg and that was an area i wanted to go into and i ended up doing the um osg um training to go into the um state protection group eventually um that was my goal to have mm. done um that's where i busted my ankle actually doing the osg training and Mate, yeah, and just out of nowhere, like, I'd, I was working at Liquor Land, mate, enjoying uh, my friends from school, like, the fact that we'd finished studies and were able to go to the club and I had some money coming in and I could just enjoy life. And then, mate, out of the blue, I just get a phone call, probably was about February or something like that, and just saying, oh, look, you know, um, we'd like you to come in for an interview with the police. And I'm going, oh, OK, yeah, fair enough. So, um, mate, out of the blue, I go to this interview at um, the old police headquarters opposite Hyde Park there in the city and I remember going into yeah, that. Yeah, what was your interview like? Oh mate, <laughs> I said I'm 18 years of age and I'm as nervous as all shit, like, I don't even know what I was wearing to be honest, like, <laughs> it would have been probably the old thin leather tie or something like that. Yeah. All I remember is there was, like, all three of them were massive, like well to me they, they appeared massive and they were just sitting on, it was like they are on the buddy, the bench in the high court yep. and I was on a little seat in front of them and I got grilled. It was like I was on the stand in a court, um, mate. They um, they got me in there, um, and I, and I've known the reason why now because they would have seen a fresh young kid out of school, yeah. And if I was going to crack in an interview, there was no way I was going to make it on the street, yeah. And so they made sure they pushed me to see if I'd break or not, and mate, it was intimidating. Like I, I think it was two senior sergeants and an inspector, and they were drilling me and they asked me where I was from and. There used to be an old warb homeless bloke around Penrith. Um, I think they called him Bumper Bill. I can't. But anyway, they were saying, look, if he was to ta be taken to the station and he's covered in shit and all that sort of stuff, and your sergeant tells you to go and clean him, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd go and clean him. And then, and they'd rip into me for saying that. They'd say, fucking, I you're going to go and clean him because your sergeant, goddamn, well, fucking, ain't going to clean him. So if you don't clean him, who else is going? And I said, yeah, I said I'd clean him. <laughs> and they just said. And they just kept ripping into me and I said, yeah, but I did say I would clean him. <laughs> so, and it was just questions like that. Every time I'd answer it, they'd say, oh, bloody goddamn, I hope you would. And I'm saying, yeah, I know, I just said I wouldn't that. And 
But then in the video they said, oh, mate, no, you did well. Thanks yeah. for that. And, and, and I can see now they were Googling me to see if I would like break down crying or whether I'd tell them to go and get fucked or something like that. But I think yep. they'll test my temperament yep. to see if I could. Because obviously out in the street, you're going to cop that. You're going to that barrage of people in your face and throwing shit at you and things that you don't want to hear and stuff like that. Even if you've yep. told them something and you know it yourself. You can tell people a thousand times out in the street, like yep. drunken, drunk or drug-affected idiots or something, and they'll come back at you, and they'll just they'll test your temperament. Yep. And if I was going to break in an interview, there was obviously no chance they're going to send me down the academy. And so I got through that, and as I said, after the interview, they're shaking my hand and thanking me. They're the nicest blokes I could ever come across. And then, but before that, fair income, I was shitting myself. And then, but then a couple of weeks after that, I got it wasn't even a couple of weeks. It might have been a week later. They said, oh, yeah, you know, you've successfully got past the interview stage. Um, we need you to go to Redfern um, College to do the fitness and uh, medical. So, and I was fit. So I had no problems with that. Like at the time I was um, into running and all that sort of things. And like I was a skinny, I was 70 kilos. Mm. Like that. I, 70 kilos. 70 kilos. <laughs> like my first warrant card, it had the weight and all that on there. And it said 70 kilos. So I was a stick. Do you know what you weigh now? I'm 96 You're kilos. You're a beast now. <laughs> I'm 96 <laughs> kilos now. And these blokes I reckon would have been 100 and buddy 96 <laughs> kilos. So. Um, and then I did the medical and fitness and that, and I thought, yeah, okay, fair enough. And here I am still working at Liquorland and that. And then a week after that, I get a phone call saying, oh, we need you to go to uh, Homebush um, to the uniform factory and get kitted out for your uniform. And I said, okay. And then a day or two after that, I get a letter in the mail saying you're due to start at the college on the 28th of March, 1988. Jesus. So, mate, within the space of about four or five weeks yep. from interview, I was starting at the college. Yeah. And this is what uh, a couple of months after I'd just finished my high school certificate. So it was just um, like I gave up my um, job at uh, Liquorland. Obviously, I'd just deferred uni, so that wasn't a problem. And then all of a sudden, and back then, your first day at the college, you start getting paid. So I was actually a trainee. So I was actually employed by the police at that point. Yep. I, I remember packing it. And like, mate, I was nervous as anything. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm here I am for the very first time in my life leaving home. Yep. And I'm leaving home to go to a college and live and we only did 12 weeks training then so really it was 12 weeks all done and dusted Jesus. So, um so it was march 1988 to june 88 and that was my whole training and then thrown into blacktown then thrown into blacktown um then you did 12 months of um a portfolio to finish but it was nothing like assignments and that all you had to do was proper like work like you had to attach an occurrence pad to it you had to put a brief of evidence to it and all that sort of stuff and then after that you'd go back to well, we went to Redfern because we were metropolitan based. Yeah. And you did another two or four weeks secondary training there. Yeah. And then you get sworn in as a constable. And that was yeah, it. right. So, Do you remember when Goulburn come in? Uh, well, Goulburn was in 88 when I was there. Okay. Uh, I went to Goulburn College. Right. Um, but it was only very um, small, the college. Like mm -hmm. all the old, when you go down there and you see the old buildings. Yep. That's pretty much all they had down there when I was there. So it yep. was very small like at that stage then the ratio of male to female was only small because the first first building was all females and then half the second building was um, females and males yep and fortunately or unfortunately i was part of the second building where we shared it with females and stuff like that so mm. um so the ratio wasn't that big but the college was just very raw yeah um there wasn't as big as what it is now yeah but yeah we did but because they couldn't accommodate to do secondary training there because obviously they had other um, classes going through. We had to do our, all the metropolitan uh, based police had to do their secondary college, um, secondary training at the Redfern College, which was yeah. still operational at the time, but only in a smaller 
capacity. So yeah. and that's where I actually did my TRG training was at the Redfern College. Okay. Although we did do a, a week or two down at Goulburn because we used the outdoor shooting range down there. So yeah, which was um, an experience. Definitely. Yeah, I so, bet. Um, I went, to this day, I'd say it's the best course I've ever done. Yeah. So pretty good. Yeah. yeah. I was playing uh, rugby league at South at the time. I was contracted for the 97 season yeah. and basically I'd had a number of injuries which prevented me from starting the start of the year in grade and Alan Jones who was the, the football manager at the time um, when I come back from injury the the season had already started yeah. and he said we want you to go back to Newtown get your fitness back and then come back in the grade and I just went no oh, no nah, I didn't sign to play for Newtown bad yeah. attitude and and so I said uh, I want a release because I was a bit over it at that, that time and so I got a release and oh, what am I going to do now and my best mate um, Pete Curran he'd, he'd um, been applying for the police for the previous 12 months and he had a number of stuff to, to do and he said look I'm aiming for the May class why don't you you just just apply so you can get in I went, oh, I've got nothing else I'm doing so yeah. mixing I apply and very quickly get an answer back so this is early April now um, yep uh, can you be at it was just near Hyde Park wasn't opposite there the Sydney Police Centre yeah Sydney Police Centre was right. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I went to um, show up here for your interview uh, this time so yeah same mate I think I had a thin black tie as well <laughs> and, um, rock in there and very very similar experience so three blokes Yep. Um, sitting on a panel, I was just sitting on a chair in front of them, and the whole interview was going really well. Like <laughs> it was nice, yeah. and then one of the blokes on the end who didn't say much through the interview, and he says to me, "So I see on your resume that um, you did athletics at school," and I said, "Yeah, yeah, I did." So I'm 22 at the time. Yeah, I did, and he said, um, "Did you ever run 400 meters?" And I said, "Yeah, I did," and he said, "How fast did you do it?" and I knew I was around the 50s, like hot yeah, yeah. 55-ish. So I just said 55 seconds. Yeah. I run 400 metres. He just looked me straight back in the eye and he said, I think you're lying. <laughs> and I I wasn't sure of myself. Like, yeah, yeah. I knew it was around that. but yeah. And all of my instinct was just to stick with 55 seconds. I yeah. said, no, it's, yeah, it's, um, you know, from what I remember at the time, you know, that I've run 400 metres, it was 55 seconds. And he said, that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> and just stared back at me. <laughs> oh, really? like, oh, it red. My heart is just pounding now. Like, <laughs> what am I going to do? He thinks I'm a liar. But, yeah. And so I said, well, no, it's 55 seconds. That's what I was told that, you know, I, I, I ran. And, yep. and he said, mate, you would make the fucking Olympics at 55 seconds. So I'm here to tell you you're fucking bullshit. <laughs> and I said, look, I'm, uh, all I can say is that, you know, I was told it was 55 seconds when I yeah. ran and um, one of the other blokes didn't, then jumped in and said, okay, you go to a, um, you know, there's a bank robbery and you pull up out the front and yeah. basically what do you do? So it's just same thing, like a scenario, yeah. you know, would you run in or would you call for backup? Anyway, I chose the call for backup. Yep. scenario and anyway same thing like they said all right just wait outside while we have a discussion and then we'll call you back in 
And the whole time I'm outside, I'm going, Jesus, you're a fucking dickhead. Like, you've just blown that. It was going so well. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, they called me back in. I got my tail between my legs. And, and same, mate. They said, uh, yeah, you're a, a breath of fresh air. And um, we really liked how you interviewed. And, um, you know, consider yourself in. Congratulations. And, you know, sorry about the hard time. But we wanted to see if you changed your story. Yep. And the time didn't matter. Yep. So I learned a lesson out of that, but yeah, that was uh, that was my introduction, the interview, and then from there, mate, just went and did the physical, the medical, went and got my uniform uh, sized up, yep. and I was at the academy in May, yeah, and yeah, just in the same class as my best mate, so two seventy. Just happens, yeah. Mine yeah. was two three five. Do you remember your your number? My registered number is two five double four two. Yeah, I'll, mine's I'll never forget three one eight four zero. So. Isn't it funny how you just you write it so many times? Yeah, yeah that that's will never be forgotten that number. So, hey, a quick story about my first day at the academy. So we lob, um, my mate and I travel down to Goulburn together, and we pull up, unpack, go to a, go to our room, unpack. What else do you do? We go to the bar. <laughs> So we have a we have a few few drinks, and then um, everyone starts talking about, you know, did you bring your suit? What tie are you wearing tomorrow? Yep. And I went, what suit? What do you mean, like tie? I didn't bring any tie or suit. And they said, yeah, it was in now the email. You should have got that. You know, we're supposed to parade tomorrow in a suit. <laughs> I went, oh fucking jeans and <laughs> just like collared shirt and jumpers. I don't, I don't have a suit. I didn't didn't see that. Yeah. So at about five o'clock in the afternoon, I ring my parents who are in Sydney and said, man, I'm in trouble. Everyone, <laughs> I've, I'm the only person here that's shown up without a suit. And to their credit, went inside, grabbed my suit out of the wardrobe. Oh, really? And they drove it down to Goulburn and they got there about eight o'clock <laughs> that night. Yep. And um, met in a car park, took the, took the, sh took the suit. And then um, I'm glad I sort of found out, otherwise I would have rocked up at parade. Imagine first day, parade at yep. 8 a.m. and everyone's in a suit and tie and I'm standing there in jeans and a collared shirt. Oh, that would have ripped into you. Fuck. So yeah, so thanks mum and dad. That was <laughs> above and beyond. <laughs> Say, dead set saved my life. One of the good times of uh, making the choice to go to the bar paid off, mate. Yeah, exactly. So, mate, many times have paid off in the bar, <laughs> Oh, the, Yeah. Well, a lot but, of good times there. Did you enjoy your academy experience? Um, mate, to be honest, no. Um, I think I was too young to enjoy it. To be honest, because I was so young, I was homesick. Yeah. Um, I had a girlfriend at the time and um, no mobile phones then. Yeah. So I couldn't keep in constant contact. Uh, like I remember driving up every, back home every Friday afternoon, doing the, the big dash from last period straight into the car and then straight up the freeway. And yep. at that stage, the freeway didn't bypass Middagong either. So you had to drive through the township of Middagong and, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Yep. So it was a, a good, just over two hour trip and things like that. And then I'd spend the weekend with my girlfriend, catch up with the family and things like that. And then I remember the drive, because we had curfew, what time you had to be back on a Sunday evening and that. So I remember having to say goodbye to her and it was, like just being young and that was upsetting and all that sort of stuff. So it was, um, I didn't really enjoy it and, and I was very um, loyal to her as well. So I didn't, um, like I wasn't, I'd go and have a drink up at the bar and that, but I'd always one or two and then go back to the room and stuff yeah. like that. And then I'd go out, like well, I was only down there for 12 weeks. So I was what, 12 Thursdays. That was yeah. pretty much it. So I probably would have gone to half a dozen, you know, Thursday nights out or whatever it is to 
at that stage then it was it wasn't Tully Park or anything like that. It was just the old workers club in, in town and that and yep. um massive fire hazard. I don't know how yeah. like you walk along the carpet and that and your feet just stick to it because of the amount of alcohol and shit that would have been spilled all over it and um like they were good nights and that but I didn't really enjoy it because I think I was too young and I was more homesick than anything else. And as it was the first, my first experience living away from home, mate, I was immature. I was no way prepared to be down there. Like you, you said, you were 22 when you yeah. joined. Mate, you had a bit of life experience. Like, yep. Mate, I hadn't, I hadn't experienced anything in the world. So yeah. Um, but I remember the first day down there and um, intimidating. Like we'll put into, I think it was uh, lecture theatre one or whatever it was, a massive big lecture yep. theatre and sitting in there with all these people and there's like we're in there for about four hours or five hours and then this was a sunday afternoon and mm. we're just signing our life away like you know sign this paperwork sign that paperwork sign this paperwork and and that's where i found out over time that i signed um it was a sas it was a superannuation scheme at the time and it was a very brand new super scheme they were getting rid of the old one the PWS, whatever it is where you're entitled to a pension if you're medically discharged and that was to change on the 1st of April and we're down there before the 1st of April but and we were actually employed by the police but they got us to sign off on a new super scheme and they sort of threw it into us and I remember a couple of blokes older blokes that were sort of a bit more switched on and they were refusing to sign it because they obviously knew the benefits and stuff like that and me being just a naive young kid and a lot of other people were just signing off and hence down the track when I did get medically discharged and trying to find out whether I'd be entitled to the pension or whether I'd be entitled to just um, blue ribbon health, whatever it was. Um, and I know there's been people that have been trying to have that decision overturned because technically like all my long service and that was all started from the 28th of March, not mm. uh, not when I was attested. Yep. But they keep going, yeah, it's on your attestation date for where you're covered for medical purposes. So it's like one rule for one and, and it was yeah. all about cost saving like all they had to do was wait till our class had gone through and they could have started with the next class because they would have started after that date and there wouldn't have been any crossover period at all so as usual a mess oh uh, mate it was a mess and, and i've actually um like i had a few i had my ribs busted when i was at blacktown um we're dragging a, a drunken idiot off the the train station and then when we're carrying him down the stairs he decided to all of a sudden start wriggling and that and we all fell down the stairs and i copped his knee into my ribs and broke three ribs and when i um put the um injury report through it was put through as a pre-88 right and it was actually accepted as a pre-88 claim and there were a another of other claims like i got stabbed with a syringe once a used syringe and again that was put through as a pre-88 claim but uh then when you try and all these other claims and then some admin staff were saying no it's got to be post-88 that's got to be pre-88 and all that sort of stuff and it just got so mixed up but then over time they just said well what's your superannuation scheme and because i'd signed on to sas they said well that's what you're covered under you're not pre-88 so but all i remember is being put into this massive the lecture room down there the big one the big theater and just signing everything and being mm. young mate, i was just signing it because i was told to sign it like yeah you know it wasn't, yep. it wasn't a case of oh, I'll, i want to take time and read this it was just sign what's put in front of you and just yeah mate oh 22 same i was signing my <laughs> life away i was signing forms that I, I don't even remember what they were now no, I was no signing idea, heaps so, of shit. yeah and we'll, we'll talk a lot about how you know in later episodes the struggle that you've had because of that situation oh, massive, um yeah. and you know what's been done about it you know <laughs> are there other people involved in in that yeah. that crossover situation oh, as you said them. if they had just waited to that 
to have the whole process start with the next class. Well, logically, it would have, yeah. uh, it would like, it would take away that thing. Well, we actually were employed before that date. So if we were injured in that week before it did change over, or a week and a half, whatever it was, by law we would have had to have been covered under the old scheme. Yeah. So because the other scheme wouldn't have taken effect. Yeah. So I'd hate to have seen what the dynamics of that would have been if someone had been injured at that time. So, yeah. Yeah. But common sense would dictate that well we've got a class starting in April. Let's wait until that class starts before we change it over. And I think it was mine and another class that were already down there that were the only two classes affected by that changeover. So mm, the mm. other classes were clearly defined by yeah. the fact they were in after that date and not down there during that date. So, yeah, yeah. Um, we had a lot to talk about, haven't we? Yeah, oh, mate. The, the way they handle things at police service, it's, um, it's surprising they still exist, actually. I think mm. if they were a private sector, they'd be long gone. But yeah, I think yeah. it's uh, the fact that the government... Is that, yeah, and there's always a need for them. Yeah, they'll always survive. But yeah, I don't think they'll. Uh, it's definitely not by management. That's that's for sure. Yeah. So. With the first episode, I wanted to just share an experience that we've both had. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, delivering a death message was always a, um, you know, definitely something that I no. struggle still with to the, these days with remembering. Yep. Do you have a a death message that you know, one thing I wanted to do was be real and raw with people about what policing's about, yeah, too. Yeah. It's not what you see on TV, and, um, you know, it affects families, um, uh, affects police, it yep. affects ambos, fireys on scenes. Yep. Um, we all go through it. So, yeah, do you remember a, a death message that you delivered that yeah, mate, stands I do. out? Um, I, said, I don't know how many I did during the service, and that was... But there's so many that you do deliver. Um, yeah. Uh, the more senior you get, obviously, the more you deliver because it's always handed to the senior person or the senior car crew. Yep. Um, when I first joined and working with senior officers, I attended them, but mostly as a junior person and they took charge of them. So um, there were a couple that I attended to, but the very first one that I've sort of really got a um, good memory of and it's still to this day, um, it's upsetting because... Mm of the circumstances as um, pretty much a bloke was, uh, elderly bloke was hit by a car um, over in the Seven Hills LAC, uh, which back down at that point, Seven Hills wasn't a 24 hour station. So we looked after their area as well. And um, pretty much after he got hit, he was walking from his place to get a bus to go into Blacktown to do some shopping. And him and his wife had just come up from Victoria to attend their daughter's uh, wedding that weekend. Wow. Um, so he was going to hand away the bride on that weekend. He was going to Blacktown to do some shopping, I think get a haircut and all that. Um, and when he was crossing the road to get the bus, hit by a car, Ambos picked him up. He died on the way to Westmead Hospital. Um, so we had to go to the, the house of his daughter and deliver obviously the death message. Um, and they were of Italian background, massive big house, big family, everyone was there. Upon telling the mother, she obviously went into hysterics, um, had a break, which we, th we thought was a heart attack at the time. She completely just collapsed and all that sort of stuff. And we started doing um, CPR on that because like, she, she just completely, yeah, was flipped out and was just non-responsive and things like that. And we had to call an ambulance to come in. And thankfully, yeah, the ambos got there. She was, she was you know, revived and all that sort of stuff. She survived that, but the whole wedding was ruined, obviously. Um, the daughter was you know they were all up planning for the wedding um and her dad that had come up from melbourne with the mum and that and just in a split second that that's the thing that's the hardest thing i suppose to comprehend when you deliver those messages is 
you know, you're telling people that have probably said goodbye, kiss their loved ones goodbye, and they've gone and they never return. Yeah. Um, that one always stays in my memory because of just the impact of, you know, knowing that they were up for just the wedding to give. Like, obviously, I, I don't know. I never followed up whether they did. I, I doubt they would have had the wedding on the weekend. Like, they just possibly couldn't have gone through it. But even when they would have probably got married, it would never have been the same knowing her dad wasn't walking her down the aisle. Oh, things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and that sticks with you. Like, it's just, how can it not stick with you? Like, um, they're up for a joyous occasion and then in a split second, life's just taken away from you. Yeah. And and just, I know I was only talking about one, but the other one, which um, when I was a brave woman, I said this was the first one that I attended when um, I was a father. And it impacted me then because two young boys were killed in a car crash and um, I had to go to Canberra. Um, morgue to have the bodies identified to the parents because we hadn't identified them at that stage and um i was brad was a, i was working by myself so i had to go to after being at the accident scene for six seven hours or however long it was because by the time you know accident investigation came down from wollongong and all that sort of stuff like it was just time and um by the time i got into the, the morgue in at canberra it was like about two in the morning and i remember meeting both sets of families there and at that stage they'll sort of both which you would be, you'd be in denial, I hope it's not them, it's hope it's not them. And then the setup at the morgue was only one, they could only view one body at a time. So I remember um, going in with the first family and then as soon as they saw it was their son, they just broke down and then I could hear from the other room, the, wife, um, the mother of the other son just completely losing her shit because she obviously, the reality had dawned yeah. that it was their kids and then Mate, I just, in an instant, I just could feel their angst because that was the first time I was a father. Yeah. So I could relate to what they'll, whereas before, I couldn't relate to what it was like as a parent to lose a kid. Yeah. But that was the first time I could relate as being a, a father, what it would feel like to actually lose a kid. Yeah. Um, and just to hear the anguish. And to this day, I can hear, still hear her screams yeah. like, coming from that room. Um, were you emotional at the time? Mate, massive. Like, mm. I, my eyes were welling up. Um, I, I was struggling to keep it together because you still had a job to do. Yeah. Uh, and that's the hardest thing. You've got to put it aside. You're, a, you know, you've, you're meant to be professional, but at the end of the day, you're just a human being too. Yeah. And, and trying to maintain professionalism and not break down and cry in front of them and that. Like, I, my eyes were welling and, you know, I'd obviously have to turn around and give it a wipe or, you know, excuse myself and go do something and just sort of check myself and come back in. But... Mate, it was tough. Um, and then I, remember, I, I did cry on the way back from um, Canberra all the way out to Braidwood and stuff like that. And then, um, and, and this is where the insensitivity of the police service is because I was at a one-man station. I just, as I said, I've been at a, f a fatality all afternoon. Um, and I remember the game, I remember the day as clear as day. It was because Manly were playing Brisbane and um, Brisbane were playing in like a... a canary yellow jersey or something like that because of the, the clash of the colours and stuff like that and it ended up being like I think Manly were down 22 nil and came back and it was a 22 and I was and I was listening to it on the radio and then all of a sudden the beeps come out of the radio possible fatality then it was confirmed it was a double fatality and then it was then there was reports that there could be a, a young child in the back seat and all that sort of stuff and it just it just all started snowballing and, and all that and then so I was at the, this accident scene all afternoon all evening had to go into Canberra do ID and all that like I was probably 12 or so hours just dealing with this one incident. And, um, and then on the way back from Canberra to Braidwood, like I said, I was fairly emotional and upset. And I remember radio then ringing me and saying, oh yeah, your 
Braidwood 16, you're on your way back out to Braidwood. Yeah, yeah oh, we just got an alarm going off at the shops at Braidwood. Do you mind attending that on your way back? Yeah. And I'm thinking, even then, like, no, everything you've gone through, like, okay, it's on my way there, but they still want to load you up with jobs. Like, yeah. They still just see you as just there to do jobs. And I had to get up at, like, I had to go back to the, the morgue the next morning because I had to then go and ID the, obviously, the bodies to the, um, the, the coroner and that. So, um, yeah. I'd, had to get up early the next morning regardless, had paperwork to complete. And then I remember getting home and um, Diane, had, um, she'd left me a, a glass of scotch on the table with a note, you know, just um, come to bed when you're ready and um, I wish I was there for you. Mm. So I remember that. And well, the two death messages I said, like they're sort of like a first in both aspects because the second one, I said, it was the first time I experienced it as a parent. Yeah. And hearing a, par- a parent's anguish at losing a child is something that haunts me. And mm. I don't know how I'd handle that. Yeah. Um, I just don't think I could. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and as I said, it stays with me to this day because I'm scared shitless that I'd have to do the same thing myself one day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. The parents that go in and um, view the body and identify them, I, I, the courage that that takes. Um, uh, mate, it's, it'd have to be, oh, well, I experienced it and it would be the worst feeling. Yeah. Um, someone, you know, to go and see something that you brought life into the world and then know that it's been taken. Mm. Um, Did you have Especially any... for the mother, like, you know. Yeah. Um, it would be horrendous. Yeah. So. Did you have any contact with the, the families of either of those afterwards? Yeah, I did, yeah. Um, both of them um, remain fairly much in contact with me in that for a while. I actually went down to the, which was, <laughs> uh, I was in hospital and part of my treatment to get over that one, I actually had to go back down and visit the scene. Really? Um, so I went, drove to Braidwood and I found the tree they'd gone into and all that. There's a little plaque on there and stuff like that and a couple of, you know, old flowers and then what was even more, um, that wasn't traumatic scene, but when I was there and I was walking around the grass and that, I kicked being there was, there was still, like this was years and years after, like um, probably a decade afterwards, there were still parts of the wreck, still the, of the grass had all grown over it and just like obviously- Fair dinkum. Yeah, still parts of the car were still um, around the tree, dirt and grass all over it and stuff like that. How just, did that make you feel? Made it upset me, yeah. yeah. I was thinking like, you know, you think they cleaned it a lot, but then there's just that, and I'd imagine like the, the, the flowers and the, the plaque and that the parents and that would probably view that and go there every now and again to you know pay their respects like that well that's their it's like their final resting place but yeah. it's a place where they'll take and so yeah um, yeah that was interesting going there but i had to do that for a bit of closure i suppose and, and to mm. be able to talk about it i suppose i did get that closure because it's as difficult as it is i can talk about it now yeah uh, it took me a long time to be able to process that and i said in other episodes i'll be able to there's a lot more to that one because that yeah. had a lot of um ramifications for my daughter in later life as well mm. um that one um just with certain aspects of that she blames herself um because my feelings from that one were instantly her protection and stuff like that so she thinks that because of that that's what caused my ptsd right. um so just that misunderstanding there we're um, going to speak about that in the next yeah, episode yeah that I think. sort of um, and it's caused her and that's that's the other effect of um peace it's not just the it's not just us that experiences it's our close loved ones that experiences as well like yep. they get a secondary cop of it and mm. um it impacts 
not just yourself, it impacts those closest to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that's, and when you're caught up in your own world of pain and that you don't see that, mm. and it's only when it's told to you that you actually see what you've actually caused and yeah. the damage that you've done. Yeah. Um, and it's, I think that's even harder to take than knowing what you've done yourself. It's mm. the impact that you've done to the loved ones yep. and the people closest to you. Yeah. So about yourself, mate, what was your mate, um, death message? One that really sticks out for a number of reasons. One, it was the first one I had to do. You know, I'd been to them before, but um, it was the first one that I actually had to speak. Um, yeah. And I guess just the circumstances around it, I just can't ever get over it. Mm -hmm. But um, it was a fatal car accident where a gentleman had had a heart attack. He's in his late 50s mm. and he'd had a heart attack and obviously car left the road and went down a, um, an embankment and um, yeah so he 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 died at the scene and it was on the northern road at um, just just coming out of St Mary's patrol um, and into Green Valley's patrol just near just oh, it's the back of Brinjelly there yeah and the gentleman lived at Campbelltown so we we arrive at the scene and you know we we do what we need to do there and um grab the identification off him and mm. obviously he was he'd been at work and he was heading home to Campbelltown via mm. the northern road so the constable that i was working with at the time lee we start heading towards Campbelltown to you know advise the family and um you know it was pretty quiet and she just turns to me and says, have you delivered a death message before? And I said, no, I haven't. And um, she said, we well, are about to do your first one. And straight away, I, I just got so nervous. Mm. You know, I don't know, you don't know what to say. I, you don't, you can plan these. Yeah. And I remember, okay, this is what I'm gonna say. I just sat there and just started processing that. This is what I'm gonna say, this is what I'm gonna say. And we get to Campbelltown, um, pull, in, pull up in front of the house, brace myself, and we go in. <laughs> and I knock on the door. Uh, a boy, he's probably about nine years old, he answers the door. Yep. And I said, oh, get home, mate, his mum home. And he said, nah, she's still at work, but dad'll be home any minute. Mm -hmm. And like, even just saying that, like, the uh. goosebumps now is, um, like I'll never forget him saying that yeah. and like you said like I don't have kids but I've got nephews now and they're mm -hmm. at that age and sometimes I'll hear them say stuff about dad and I I just automatically go back to that that moment yeah. and I said oh, okay mate um you know we we need to speak to mum so do you know when she'll be home and Anyway, he says, oh, she should be home by five o'clock and it's like four o'clock. So yeah. I said, all right, we'll come back. So we went, sat around the corner for, you know, an hour. Yep. And then, yep, see mum drive into the driveway yeah. and um, basically go back to the front door and, um, you know, said, oh, are we able to, to talk to you? Is there, is there somewhere the kids can go for the time being? And she said, oh you know, what's wrong, what's wrong? And I said, um, oh, we just need to, to talk to you about about some things. And she said, oh, well, the kids can go next door. So she arranged that, the kids went next door and, and she come back and, and yeah, I, I just said, um, look, unfortunately, mm -hmm. your husband has been killed in a car accident. And 
just the realization on her face. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, then we took her in our car back to Penrith. Yeah. That's where the body had been taken yeah. um, for her again to identify the body. Yeah. And what do you talk about in the car going from Campbelltown yeah, to Penrith can't. with someone who you've just told that your husband's been killed in a car accident? Because um, at that time, we didn't know he'd had a heart attack. He'd just, yeah. you know, yeah. so didn't didn't really know if he'd been run off the road or he fell asleep or anything so there was so many what ifs from her and she's crying and asking questions and yeah luckily for us at that time um when we got back to Nepean there was a um uh like a minister there yeah. and so he he took over with her yeah. which was which is I remember now being so helpful because I I didn't know what to say to her any 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 you further just don't. you just don't know and so by the time other family members arrived and you know it's about oh it's about seven o'clock at night by the time we leave the hospital we drive back to Campbelltown to, to yep. drop her off um, and then we go we come back to from Campbelltown back to Green Valley and like it was a 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. shift so it's 11 p.m. Yeah uh, walk out the door no, no, nothing. See us later, yep. and then had to be back at six a.m. the next day to do it all over to again. Well, the um, actually the the constable that was in she was in charge of the job, yeah. the, so she went to the coroner. Yep. But um, but just being back there, like like there's you, no like you said, there's just that, no yeah. follow up. It was just like straight yeah, back out, straight back it. into alarms and domestics and neighbour disputes. But mate, that's just one that um, you know that we'll share so many over the over yeah, the time, yeah. but that's just one that really sticks out because the way he just said to me at that door, mum's not home, but dad'll be home any minute. And you're there to tell him that, dad, you're never gonna see your dad again. Now, I, I can't ever not be affected by that. As much as I've tried yeah. to just get on with it, I. Whenever I see kids um, yeah. and they'll talk about, you know, uh, dad'll be home or yeah. I, I just straight back to that door standing there. So, um, yeah. Mate, it's just, um, you can't get away from feeling guilty mm. about it. Like, um, I know the ones that I've delivered that you just feel guilty for having to tell them. Yeah. I know someone's got to do it, but, and, and there's no textbook way of doing it. No. And the worst, as you said, they drive back to Penrith, even when you're sitting at the house and you, and you, you can't leave them there. You can't just say, mm. well, guess what? Such and such is dead. See you later. You've got to try and arrange support for them and that. And then usually that takes a little bit of time before it comes. And that. So you've got to sit with them and you just do not know what to talk about. You're like, you know, you can say, well, do you want me to make a cup of tea or something like that? Or, yeah. you know, um, is there anything you want me to do around the house for you? Or, you know, you just try and fill the time in, but it's just... And that's all it is, is just trying to fill time in because apart from delivering the death message, you've got nothing in common with the person. You don't yeah. know who they are. And yeah. It is so difficult because you feel guilty that you've just, in the space of five minutes, whatever time it takes to deliver, you've just ruined this person's life mm. in an instant. Mm. Um, you've delivered the worst possible news you could deliver to anyone. Yep. Um, and as I said, like, the, the son 
thinking dad's on his way home and stuff like that and you knowing that no um that's not going to happen like i and that's the thing like that's that's probably the hardest job in the whole cops i reckon yeah definitely i uh, like seeing mangled bodies and all that sort of stuff like that in, in a sort of way it's some of the, the things i've seen it just seems surreal and you sort of can't make sense that it is actually reality yeah because it's just so fucked up or messed yeah. up when you deliver you, then you actually do see the raw emotion from someone that you've and, and you, it's like you've hurt them yes it's like it's you hurting them yes um when you know it's not you but you're just delivering the worst possible news but you actually feel you've hurt them yes um yeah that's the hardest thing to cut yeah and the fact too is because of the role that you're playing there you have to be the strong one yeah even though you've been to the scene you've seen the 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 carnage and you've seen the body yeah then you've had to prepare yourself for it and yeah. then you have to deliver it yeah emotionally you're spent already yeah yeah absolutely so um, um i encourage anyone who's currently in the police that if you you know when you're you're delivering death messages or anything that you see you know talk about it mm. don't use alcohol to mask it like we did um you know seek out someone that you trust um and because I, I didn't talk about that for a long time yeah. and it ate me alive, but the, the times when I do talk about it, I do feel better. Like I do feel a release from yeah. it, even though it'll never go away, I just feel a, a, a release of it. Yeah. So I just encourage every, anyone who's um, currently serving or hasn't spoken about experiences to reach out to someone and just talk about it. It, it may help. Uh, it does help. And then even when you talk about it, if you feel sad or you feel like you're going to cry, just cry. Just, just cry, yep. Just let it out because that's anyway, the more you bottle it up, it's like a Coke bottle. You shake it up, shake it up, shake it up. Eventually it's going to come out and yep. it's going to come out usually in an unhealthy way. Yeah. If your emotions are there, you just got to allow them. Yep. Um, otherwise, those healthy emotions of crying or feeling sad, whatever it is, they become unhealthy emotions where you take it out in, into anger or yep. violence or, you know, substance or alcohol abuse or something like that or infidelity or something like that. It then yep. comes out in another form because yes. you, you need that escapism anyway. Yeah. And a lot of it is to mask what you're feeling. So mm. if you're denying your own feelings to come out, you're going to take it out in another way and it's generally an unhealthy way. 100%. Which has massive ramifications. Yeah. Yeah, which I know we're going to be talking about later on in that, but it does. And um, as I said, like even that one that I did at Canberra and that, like I was breaking on the inside. I was absolutely broken, but I had to try and keep myself together mm. for their sake. And like I should have been allowed or I should have felt comfortable where I could have just gone to a room and just let my tears come out and bore my eyes out and, and not feel that I was going to be judged by it. And, and I look back now and I don't think the family would have had any ill will towards me if I'd done that. No. I probably would have showed to them that I was a compassionate person and that what's happened to them has affected me mm. because I'm human as well and that I can feel their pain. Yeah, exactly. It would show me in a different light, but because you've got that thing, well, no, I'm wearing this uniform, I've got this armour on, I'm not, I can't show emotion. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's, yeah, it's a job, it's a professional job, but at the end of the day, we're only people. Yeah, like 100%, you're just human and... You just need to, um, you know, we experience the same emotions as what everyone else does. Well, we do. You, and you, we weren't trained in in that. You You're know, not. You, you, you never trained all on how to deliver text. a death message. 
But not only that, you're not untrained either. Mm. When you leave, well, that's the thing yeah. that I've noticed. There's no detraining. Mm. Um, you're left to your own device how to work out how to live the rest of your life. Having been, ex- and I'm still going through it now, like trying to desensitize, well, not so much desensitize, but just make sense of what you've been through and, and learn to be able to cope with it. Yep. Um, and knowing from the police, to, and even now, like being, like, as I said, the car goes off there and you, straight away your, your, your senses kick in because yeah. you're so highly, and it's, I imagine it'd be the same as defence personnel and, yep. and fireys and ambos, you're, because you get trained and you're repeatedly doing it over and over and over, like with football skills, mm. you do a skill over and over again, it becomes secondary nature. Yeah. That's the same with the police, you do things over and over again, it becomes secondary nature. So you see someone sus, you, you watch them, you see what they're doing. Yeah. And sirens, if I hear a siren, I'm... You know, straight away my attention's diverted, my pulse rate goes, mm. um, I'm agitated, I'm wondering where they're going, you know, is it something that I've been to, is it something similar, are they going, to, you know, it's that curiosity and that just training that just takes over. Yeah. Um, like even when you're in the cops and you hear a siren, you think, oh, I wonder what job's that going to be, you know, like, yep. be, you know, you're waiting for the radio to start calling you to go to whatever job it is and stuff like that. And, yep. Um, and that never leaves you and you no. never get detrained from it. No, so, exactly. Um, our senses are going to be heightened for the rest of our lives mm. that's something like even the fact when we have to go to a restaurant or somewhere or a cafe and have to have your back up against the water observe all the exits and yep. be familiar with your surroundings and stuff like loads i went and had uh, breakfast yesterday morning with my um daughter and and ex-wife diane and they'd got there before me and they'd already set the table up in a corner and they made sure that I had the seat right in the corner because they just knew that was my seat. And, like, yeah. and I even made a comment and they said, yeah, we knew you'd, you'd want to sit there. Um, and they just know. Everyone's conditioned by it. Everyone's they? conditioned yeah. by it. And they just know that's where I'd feel comfortable. And they went out of their way to make sure I felt comfortable yeah. being sitting there in their company and that. And um, and I hate living like that. I'd love yeah. to just be able to go into a place and just totally relax and not care who's behind me, not care who walks in. You know, I, I'm envious of those people that have had those lives where they haven't seen anything bad happen. Mm. Um, I'd love to have that pure innocence of thinking once everyone goes to bed at night, nothing happens in the world. Yeah. You know, everyone, that's where things are ramping in, up. Yeah, that's when everything ramps. And that's the thing, like, people don't see that side of life. Yeah. And I'd love to have that innocence or that, you know, just ignorance of not knowing what does go on. Yeah. It'd yeah. be bliss. Yeah. It would absolutely be bliss. So, mate, thank you. Um, right, mate. We'll wrap it up there with a storm coming in. Looks like it, yeah. Um, mate, thanks for sharing that. No, mate, um, thanks for sharing yours too. We've got plenty of uh, episodes to, to go and, Definitely. you know, uh, we, we wanted to uh, bring on uh, guests from New South Wales Ambulance, New South yep. Wales Fire and Rescue, Defence, um, Nursing. Yep. So. This is not just about police, it's just going to develop into um, talking about the experiences of, you know, those on triple zero and those in defence and, um, you know, experiences we've had and and how we've dealt with those um, after we've left. So, um, yeah, anyone who's listening, thank you and see you next time. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Cheers, mate.